0: Hello and welcome to the sixth remote sermon podcast in our series through the sermon on the mount it's sunday april 19th day 34 of sheltering in place not that anyone is counting i was out in our neighborhood the other day when i saw that someone had written in big chalk letters on their garage door you made it to today and i felt like cheering For a lot of us, sheltering in place has meant being around a smaller group of people for more prolonged periods of time, be it because we're working from home, not working at all, or homeschooling, and that can create friction that's challenging to deal with. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, in which a senior devil writes to a junior devil, and in the third letter, the senior devil addresses what can happen when two people live in close quarters. He gives advice about how to press that kind of situation to their advantage. When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows which he learned to dislike in the nursery and let him think how much she dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And, of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. As he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. Lewis is being kind of humorous there, but he also hits on some truths. What is happening with our relationships during this pandemic is spiritually significant, particularly as we find ourselves around the same people day after day. The issue of how we relate, especially when we see problems in one another, is actually what Jesus addresses in our passage today, which is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. So let's walk through the passage together by looking at three questions. First, what is our responsibility in relating with each other? Secondly, how do we relate with each other in the right way? Lastly, how do we relate with God in all of this? So, three things. What is our responsibility in relating? How do we relate with others? And how do we relate with God? Firstly, what is our responsibility in relating? The first two words Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 are, Judge not. So, does this mean we aren't really accountable for other people? This is a tempting thought, because we live in a relativistic, individualistic society that tells us we shouldn't judge. Don't judge me, I won't judge you. And honestly, people can be so transient in our area that it's tempting not to bother investing in others too much. These words can be used out of context to suggest that we shouldn't have opinions about other people anyway. But the trouble is, that's not what Jesus means here at all. He's not using the word judge as in to evaluate, think critically, or have standards. For one thing, later on in this very chapter, he calls people pigs, dogs, and false prophets. Clearly, he's making and asking us to make some kind of assessment about people. Rather, Jesus is using this word judge in the sense of how God will ultimately judge to potentially punish, condemn, and destroy. He's saying we shouldn't judge in a way that condemns other people, that is harsh or destructive, that cuts them out of our lives or seeks to get rid of them. And the difference there, the difference between assessing and condemning, is I think mostly in our attitude. We cross the line when we have a self-righteous spirit or a feeling of relative superiority. A good example of this right now is how easy it is to judge people about things like whether they're wearing a face mask or whether a particular procedure or service or product should be considered essential. It's so easy to start condemning people in our thoughts, to go from noticing some problem we think someone has, to viewing them as an inherently worse person because of it, to start thinking, well, I would never do that, or I'm better than that, to despise them on some level in our hearts. Jesus says quite simply, don't do this, and he goes on to explain why. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Note that Jesus is speaking here primarily to believers. The Bible does talk about a judgment for believers, one that doesn't determine our eternal destiny, but does affect our eternal destiny. Jesus says there will be a judgment for all of us. And however harshly you judge someone else, that is how you too will be judged. God is the judge. And in fact, when we condemn others, what we're doing is taking his place. I think about what Joseph said at the end of Genesis. This is the part of the story where his brothers realized that with their father dead, Joseph could pay them back for what they did, and they got scared. But Joseph says to them, Am I in the place of God? He didn't say, Hey guys, it was no big deal what you did, it was a while ago. He didn't discount or make excuses for what they did. What he said was, you do need to be judged, but I cannot judge you. God is the only one who has perfect knowledge about a person, about their background, context, and motives, and who has perfect character, who will give justice in a perfect way, proportion, and degree. Can you or I do that? Do we have perfect knowledge and character? Are we in the place of God? Romans 14:4 four says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. So if we're not to condemn people, how are we to deal with problems we see in their lives? Jesus says in verses 3 through 5, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, "Let me take the speck out of your eye," when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, as an ophthalmologist, I'm compelled to ask, why does Jesus use the eye as a metaphor? He doesn't talk about having a speck in your heart, or your mind, or your leg. Well, when you have a speck in your eye, obviously you can't see, and therefore you can't function. But foreign bodies in the eye also cause an incredible amount of pain, tearing, and light sensitivity. The cornea, the clear surface of the eye where foreign bodies often get stuck, has 300 times the density of nerve endings as your skin. People who have corneal abrasions typically come in so debilitated by the pain that it's difficult to even pry their eyelids open to get a look. There is no doubt that when you have a speck in your eye, you cannot take it out yourself. You need someone to do it for you. Jesus is very clear that we have a responsibility towards each other. When we see something in someone's life that shouldn't be there, that's causing them to be blind in pain or not functioning as they should, he commands us to take those things out for them. Sometimes when conflict arises in close confines, it's easier to withdraw, to just care less or connect less. But we aren't to withdraw, neither are we to condemn. Rather, we are to take the speck out of our brother's eye. But the key is that we have to do it in the right way. And that brings us to the second question. How do we do this? How do we take the speck out in the right way? Jesus gives us two answers. The first is that we must deal with our own sin first. The word speck literally means a moat, like a dust moat. You have to look pretty hard to see it, actually. Whereas log here literally means a load-bearing beam. What is Jesus saying? Well, the speck and the log are both made of the same substance, wood, but their difference in size and therefore their difference in function and significance is comically drastic. He's saying that much as we tend to focus on other people's problems and how they affect us, the reality is that our own issues are so much more serious and significant. Our own issues are really what we need to be focusing on. When we're hurt or annoyed by someone, our first reaction is always to point the finger or get defensive. And Jesus is saying, resist that. Before you even look for the problem in the other person, consider the part your own sin may be playing in the situation. When something bothers you about someone, consider asking, is this an issue I struggle with myself? Does my response to this reveal any sin in myself that I need to deal with first? It is only when we deal with our own sin first that we're prepared to deal with sin in others, because doing so takes preparation and absolutely depends on us having clear vision to do it. Have you ever wondered what it actually takes to get a foreign body out of someone's eye? The most common foreign body that gets referred to an ophthalmology clinic is metal embedded in the cornea. The metal can't be flushed out. Typically, someone has already tried doing that it has to be dug out with the tip of a needle or other small instrument. If it's not done carefully, you can cause more harm by scratching up the cornea or, even worse, perforating it. The interesting thing is that the procedure is done mostly by sight, not by feel. It requires the patient put their head in a powerful microscope with a light in it. Then the first thing I have them do is find something to look at with the uninjured eye because this holds their injured eye still then i put my left hand on the microscope controls so i can continually fine-tune the focus and with my right hand i hold the upper and lower eyelids back with my third and fourth fingers grip the needle with my first and second fingers and use my fifth finger to brace my hand on their cheek in case they make a sudden movement with your head so i'm controlling a powerful microscope I've got a bright light, I've got the other eye fixated, I've got the eyelids out of the way, I've got my hand braced, and only then, with good preparation and visualization, can I carefully dig out the metal. And this requires calm and patience. Typically, it takes a few tries because it's kind of unnerving to let someone near your eye with a sharp object. I mean, I don't tell them I'm holding a needle, but most of them figure it out. If you think about it, the eye is the part of the body that people most dislike having touched. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, You are going to handle a soul. You are going to touch the most sensitive thing in man. How can we get the little moat out? There is only one thing that matters at that point, and that is that you should be humble. You should be sympathetic. You should be so conscious of your own sin and your own unworthiness that when you find it in another, far from condemning, you feel like weeping. Do you feel like weeping with the sin that you see in others? Have you wept before for the sin of your friend, your husband or wife, your child? You know, wrestling with your own sin does something to you. It changes you. When you realize the nature of your own sin, how deep it goes, how hard it is to change, when you realize what your sin means before God, it's then that you can see clearly to help others. It's then that you have the empathy and patience you need. What is the second thing Jesus has to say about how to take the speck out in the right way? He says that we need to use discernment. Verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Wow, no mincing of words here. And what is this verse doing stuck in the middle of this section? Well, a common way of reading it is, don't even bother sharing the truth with people who have rejected it. And there may be something to that. But let's look at this verse for a moment as a parable, a story. While dogs could be stray animals, as a group, dogs and pigs were often domesticated, which suggests that Jesus is speaking here to the owner of the animals. And what an owner would be throwing them is food. Now, a pearl cannot be digested. It's not what a hungry dog or pig is looking for or what they really need. The onus here is not on the animal. It's not in their nature to eat pearls. The responsibility lies on the owner to be able to discern what the animals in their care need. What is this pearl? There's one other parable of a pearl in the book of Matthew, and it too is just one sentence. It's in Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The pearl is the kingdom of heaven, the gospel, which Jesus gets at in our passage with the word holy. His point is, we must be discerning in both when and how we present the truth. It won't be the same for everyone. It's like in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Right after that, verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly. So do you answer a fool or not? It takes discernment to know. In the novel, The Horse and His Boy, another book by C.S. Lewis, there's a scene at the end of the story where the main characters find out that what they thought were different lions they met in different ways throughout their different journeys were actually all the same lion, Aslan, who's a kind of Christ figure in the story. As Aslan explains that he was the one who clawed Erebus' back, she asks him about what happened to someone else, and we read in reply, "'Child,' said the lion." I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. We each have our own stories that God is telling in our lives, and none of them are the same. We have to discern and honor the peace of God in other people's lives. We have to be sensitive to their appetite for truth and ability to digest it, Because the gospel does not make sense unless God is helping you on the inside. Unless he is changing you from the animals who trample on the pearl because it doesn't give them what they want to the man who sells everything he has for it. God is the one who ultimately does that work, not us. And he does it at his own pace. He is the one telling the story, not us. You know, it's challenging to be patient in sharing the gospel, and the type of relational evangelism we often do here takes time, sometimes lots of time. It's challenging to be patient and praying for someone in your family who isn't changing or growing as you hope they will. That, too, sometimes takes lots of time. Instead of reading this verse and thinking, I'm just going to give up, they're a bunch of pigs and dogs, I actually think the emphasis is more... How can I be a loving steward of the truth and honor the peace of God in their lives? God, help me to discern the part I play in their story, even if it's just to pray, to wait, or to learn how to listen better. So, we've seen that we have a responsibility to deal with the sin we see in others, but that to do so rightly, we have to deal with our own sin first, and we have to exercise discernment in how and when we present the truth. Now, at this point, it's easy to feel discouraged. These things are hard to do, and I often find they're harder to do for people who are closer to me, whose specks tend to hurt or annoy me more. And that's part of the challenge of this sheltering in place. It brings out and magnifies all the eyebrow raises, all the specks and splinters in our closest relationships. We have to remind ourselves that what Jesus says here isn't ever meant to be a series of self-help steps. We can't just make up our minds to do these things because the reality is we can't do it on our own. That's why I think Jesus so often turns, as he does now, back to our relationship with God. We can only live into this with his help. So now let's talk about this third and last question. How do we relate to God in all of this? Jesus says in the next few verses, Now, I don't know about you, but my first question on reading this is, do we really get whatever we ask for? These sound like pretty absolute statements. Well, what God is promising is something that is actually much bigger and better than getting whatever we ask for. You see, there are two operative words here, father and good. Think about it. God, who is omnipotent, knows the difference between good and evil perfectly, better than anyone else. And because he's also a father who loves us, he will never give us anything which will turn out to be harmful for us. If we ask for things which are not good in itself or not good for us directly or indirectly, immediately or ultimately, he denies them. And this is actually a wonderful thing. It allows us to ask even more freely and boldly because we don't have to carry the burden of figuring out if what we're asking for is really the best thing for us in the way and time we're asking for it. If God was like a vending machine or a genie or a magic wand and immediately gave us whatever we chanced to ask for, it would be terrible for us and the world. But here is the thing. God will very often give us what we ask. That seems to me to be the main point here, actually. But we have to ask. Aren't kids a great example of this? Our youngest daughter is four years old, and she is great at asking. There is nothing she will not ask for, however unlikely, however repetitive. And, full confession, lots of times I give in just because she asks. This is how she scores treats for everyone all day. Because eventually I'll say, Oh, fine, I guess it won't kill you to have one piece of candy. Just make sure everyone gets one so it's fair. God's giving depends on our asking. It's implied here that there are some things we are not given unless we ask, some things that are not found unless we seek, some doors that are not open to us unless we knock. James 4.2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. And why does Jesus talk about this right here? He's already talked about prayer and God as Father earlier in chapter 6. That would seem like the logical place to put these verses. But I think he puts this here to show us what we're to ask for. Because now that we have nearly all of the Sermon on the Mount before us, now that we know how we should be relating to others, our choice is to grow in despair or grow in desire. And Jesus says, Do you catch this vision of life in the kingdom? I want you to grow in desire for it. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't give up, don't despair, because it will be given to you. These are the good things your father wants to give to those who ask. How much do we truly ask? I'm struck by how often I think of what to pray for rather than actually pray for it. We so often have a passive, osmotic kind of approach to God. We think something will seep in. We're content with passing desires. We're not willing to knock. Think about how active and disruptive a knock is. The thing is, asking requires realizing what our needs and desires are and then admitting them to God, which takes vulnerability. True asking, not demanding or taking, but also not denying or ignoring, is actually quite rare, I think. True asking acknowledges the other's free will in granting the request or not. It honors the other person's ability to decide. It puts our desires in their hands. And if the other gives, all we can do is receive. It's true asking and receiving that builds relationships. In the end, it's not about the request or the stuff at all as much as it is about the relationship we build with God when we truly ask. We come now to the end of our passage here in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus gives us here a brilliant summary of everything we've been talking about. Think about it. What do you wish others would do for you? Don't you wish they would view you with grace and not with harsh judgment? Do that for them. Don't you wish they would point out your specks with love and compassion, not with hypocrisy? Do that for them. Don't you wish they would respect how much of the truth you can take and give you what you need at this point in your journey? As much as you can, do that for them. We might wish for these things, but ultimately only Jesus does them perfectly for us. He alone is willing and able to come under the harsh judgment of God so that we can receive grace. He alone is perfectly free of hypocrisy and moved by love and compassion. He alone is himself the pearl of truth, scorned by the world, but revealed when the time is right. He alone is the proof that there is indeed no good gift that our Father God withholds from us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know God will give good gifts to his children? Because he gave us the hardest thing for any father to give, the life of his only son. That's how much he loves us. That's how much Jesus loves us, that he could speak about God giving us every good gift, knowing that ultimately he was speaking about his own suffering and death. Because of Jesus' death and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can ask for the ability to live all this out, and he will give it to us one day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time at each of our own paces, according to each of our own journeys. Where are you in your journey today? I encourage you to take a few moments, right where you are now, to think about what you're seeking and ask God for it. Ask for the discernment and patience you need towards yourself and towards others. God will give us every good thing as we go on one day at a time.